It is estimated that 75% or more of all silent films have been lost forever. Negligence, greed, malice, and war have overseen the erasure of the majority of films' earliest years. But all hope is not lost. Long-forgotten films are being rediscovered in the unlikeliest of places. For the first time in over a century, we are able to return to context these previously unknowable works. It is our job to write the next chapter of their histories. Ashes to classics, rescued from oblivion. Welcome back, dear listener, to the aforementioned Ashes to Classics with myself, Stephen, and of course, David. David, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks, Stephen. Excellent. I'm doing well as well, by the way, just saying you didn't ask, but it's fine. Um, (laughs) So, we're going to talk about a really important and interesting film today. But before we do that, we're going to talk about a really interesting and important film. Um, (laughs) So, I made the much, much promised leap of finally watching Murnau's The Last Laugh which I've been meant to do for a long time I think I didn't realise it was 90 minutes long um, yeah you know a lot of these silent films that's the great thing about silent films is that you're averaging 45 minutes to 90 minutes for mm. most films there's the occasional epic that's like two and a half hours but you know every film nowadays is two and a half hours so what's yeah, the problem no. with that <laughs> I mean I hate to bring up this already because you know it's not really this thing but I remember the, the the discourse of relief around a new Marvel film being two hours. I'm like, oh, it's two hours? Wonderful. <laughs> I was like, it's very telling of how things have got. Anyway, so yeah, yeah I watched Manaus um, The Last Laugh, which um, I will give a, a brief statement on, and then David will quiz me about it, because it's a, a favourite of his, and I watched it for on his behalf, but I'm glad I did, because I thought it was absolutely brilliant. So yeah, um, Manaus The Last Laugh is fantastic. Really, really fantastic. It was good to see Emil Yannings, um, Yarning? Yarning? I don't know. Um, Yarnings. Close enough. Yarnings. Yarnings. Emil Yarnings in a full-throated pre-Nazi role. Um, but thank you for, for ruining him. But I suppose he ruined himself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you were going to find out one way or another. If you True. kept going down the Yarnings hole, you were yeah. eventually going to reach the fact that he was Nazi. You know, so I might as well just uh, get get that out right out the gate. So you can just reconcile it and uh, en- enjoy what you can. So it, this is not quite... Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin in the essence of I could show this to someone that doesn't in quotes like silent film or has n- not no interest in silent film be like this is wonderful I don't think it is quite there I think that's not a quality statement however mm-hmm. I think if you are interested in cinema if you're already a cinema convert this is such a great oh by the way silent film can do this because this is expresses itself in a way that I, as a neophyte silent film enjoyer, don't expect silent film to be like. It is really dynamic, which is not a word you often use with silent film, outside of things like Napoleon, so your big like epics, it's often usually on the, the grander scale, and it's a 90-minute movie. And it is visual, very, very visual, in a way that silent film often is, but doesn't fully harness. I forget the exact term for this, and I'm sure you'll remind me, but this is part of a specific sub-genre of film that tried to express themselves, so like, like commonplace dramas, and as part of being commonplace dramas, they try to eschew intertitles, and I believe there is a specific category that is. Do you remember the term? I can't recall a specific term. Um, you know, there was lots of, lots of cases where, in, in multiple different regions and uh, cultures where 
people were, you know, trying to create the best uh, silent film with the least amount of words. There's a famous competition between Chaplin and Keaton, uh, actually, to see who could make the feature with the least amount of intertitles uh, that Chaplin ultimately won. But it was like 20-something, or I think they got it down to. And at the same time, you got something like Murnau making The Last Laugh, which has, yeah. like, two? Two and, intertitles? And there's one major one, and the rest are arguable. Right. Um, so there is yeah. one like epilogue statement that we'll get to because it's kind of the yep. most interesting part of the film for me and the rest is just it's all diegetic intertitling so if someone hands someone a piece of paper you are going to get a shot what's not his paper which which feels natural that 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 still happens in sound film so that doesn't feel like a a silent film concession so apart mm-hmm. from that it is all very visual broad and theatrical storytelling which is really really engrossing and from the opening shot of it's this beautiful shot outside these um, rotating doors of a hotel where our, our titular character who has his titular last laugh um or does he um no no it's, it's, a, it's a bad translation <laughs> i don't know what the <laughs> laugh yeah I've, the, I've i've no idea i guess the, the german epilogue? title the german title is der letzte mann which just means the last man which makes way more sense yeah, I don't know where they got laugh from. I guess, I guess it's like, like the, the last hurrah, maybe, like that kind of sense. But the last laugh has like an idiomatic meaning that the film is not in line with at all. Unless yeah, you it's... consider the epilogue to be the reason why the movie is called that, which seems yeah. spurious. It's really, it's really odd. Uh, but that's its name that we've given it, so we got to roll with it. Yeah, and then that also kind of like anchors the meaning of the poster because it makes him look more like maniacal on the poster because of like the last laugh. It looks more villainous. So you've got this wonderful shot at the beginning and it's just there's so much movement. The camera likes to glide forwards quite a lot and there's just a lot happening in the screen and the camera is very good at reacting to the actor's presence in the screen, which, again, I'm not very used to in silent film. I'm used to, as we'll talk about in the film later, here's a static emplacement and then... Mm-hmm the mise-en-scene will develop, it will be blocked so as things happen, or in the case of the film today, it will not feel blocked, so therefore it feels quite haphazard. Whereas this feels immaculately blocked out, and the camera work is really, really dynamic within the bounds of what you can do with a camera of the technology of 1924. And the style of acting is so overtly theatrical, but in a way that's necessitated by lack of intertitles, and it makes this commonplace story which this must be like a huge influence on like italian neorealism of like the of placing stories in certain areas and the theatricality of it the poetry of it which italian neorealism has as well is so achieved with these larger than life turns that take a barebone story and make it utterly excellent and it's this is kind of story that you can do purely visually with a few kind of like guided lines and it's just wonderful and it's a really interesting story about ageism and despair it is better told than the story is good if that makes sense mm-hmm. it's it's about the way in which yeah it's still, again in in the similar sense that, that we kind of talked about last week i think a lot of silent films by nature are broad yeah and symbolic or allegorical yes. because you can only convey so much through the medium but this is often done with a subtlety and nuance in the performance and in the direction that gives you a wider sense of something of greater depth than on the surface the story typically is 
and and this is melodrama. This is like in in the register mm. of like hyperbolic drama of these things happen, but not usually this escalated, not usually within. Let's be honest, seventy five minutes. Um, because we'll, we'll we'll get to that last bit. So it, it it goes through a bunch of sad things happening, and it becomes this cry for um, understanding. And the way that I read it is more as like a cry for transparency, because bad things happen to this person, and in some aspects you could read him as the architect of his further despair because he is not willing to be open about him losing his job because of a fear of social standing. That's, yeah, I think that's a wider commentary on the social standing. Exactly. And that, and that sense, uh, and that sense of hierarchy. Very good, yeah, I agree. we all exist within, that, the, as opposed to an individual himself. It is a story about an individual's downfall, mm. um, but not necessarily of his own design. Again, like, the way you could define it as his own design is in how he buys into this system that yes. we all we all do in a sense and that the whole community does as well and so the consequence he faces as a result of losing the prestige that's associated with his you know employment is not you know necessarily of his own doing but is still one he faces because of this wider inescapable um, yeah idea of, of of a hierarchical system that is imposed upon and, and with his right. coat as this great symbol, and like to us as the viewer of like the, the a great choice is his actual role as doorman is not actually very socially prestigious, um, and that's nope. for me a, a great decision of the film to show that what falls can mean to more everyday, more dare I say, relatable people of this sense of manufactured prestige and you're right, manufactured hierarchies. But what I really like about it is that this is cool for like honesty and openness because things just happen to this man from things like outside of things. There's that needs to be um, have that sort of dialogue because a lot of people involved in this who you could point blame to certain directions but are all kind of like victimised or pushed by little wheels and cogs of systems around them and that stuff's really interesting and it goes to a necessarily tragic place very necessarily and that's the movie and that's quite sad actually and then you do go a bit like well just now I feel kind of bad about it and that's not what I expect from cinema. And it still would be a great movie. And that is your like your Bicycle Thieves style. Like this sets up what would become a genre that then would morph into misery porn. This is never misery porn, but it, it, no. But it's a it's a very cynical story. Very much so. And you know, cinema is no stranger to those kind of tales where you know that is the the intent of the story is to highlight mm. something critical through a very cynical lens, very dour perspective. Uh, that ultimately sees the you know try again. We, we've been talking about this as well yeah. you know, throughout the German expressionist era. Here is that a lot of these films end on these very weary notes to yeah undermine. weary and dour. Um, and yeah. I can imagine myself being like, if that wasn't a film, being like, well, it was very very good, but I think its cynicism works against it because it isn't a theatrical register. It never feels truly true, so therefore it can't sell me a true sadness because it doesn't have the register of truth. And then the film does what I think is masterful of it steps in and goes, this is the sad thing that happens, but because it's a film, we can give him an epilogue and a happy ending. And to me, that film then becomes a film about filmmaking. And therefore it makes the previous part make sense because that shows that one thing that film can do is it can spotlight and hyperbolize suffering in a way that makes it emotive, but it can also bring great joy. And the audience wants a sense of release but the sense of release undercuts the story. So they're able to have that. It comments on, and it makes you reflect your relationship with cinema and stories as they're told and why you were not okay with that previous story, which is a brilliant place to put you in. 
but it also lets the reality of the story be sharpened and remain of this sad thing would have happened and it did happen but also by having this ending it links back to my thought about like hope and transparency of both these things are possibilities things can go well and things can go bad this is all about vicissitudes about the things that happen to people and it's the idea of like there are things out of our control that determine our lives we should focus on the wider systems because it can go this way by luck and it can go this way by luck and that becomes a much more profound and interesting and just also just like a landmark just like what a clever thing to do and it really reminds me of the ending of taste of cherry and i wonder if the ending of taste of cherry is is inspired by this which is a, a different move and i won't spoil here but right. does a thing at the end that it ends on a point of real suffering sadness and potential ambiguity and the ending uncuts that began like don't think about the ambiguity because that's not what the film is about. You are not there to think about the real world implications, sorry, the, the fictive implications. You are there to mm -hmm. think about this as a metaphorical, allegorical text and wider things. Um, and I like the, the lampshading of that, I think, is utterly brilliant. Yeah, what a wonderful film. I, I think another great thing about the ending of The Last Laugh is that it also lends itself to a, a different perspective, the ones mm -hmm. who kind of subscribe to that more cynical you know, view in that because of how... I don't know, kind of like outrageous or manufactured it comes across as. It's yeah. a very deus ex machina. I oh, think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, yeah, in, in incredibly, like, almost unbelievable sense to a point that it can oh, it's underline... it's self-product, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it can underline that cynicism even more. Like, it's just so inherently illogical yes. that it just further... It can further intensify the sense of cynicism and, you know, depression that the kind of intended ending i guess you yeah would call. i don't know if you, you would call it so it frames it kind of like that like Slightly. this is the ending but it could have you know <laughs> we could have, we're going to give him we sympathize with this character so we're going to give him a happy ending to so allude like, to our um, friends in the daydream cast it's the true ending you know you've unlocked yeah. you, got all, you got all the collectibles in the last laugh yeah. you get you mm -hmm. unlock his jacket as the new skin and then but yeah no i, I agree because I, I i do think the ending therefore opens up a dialogue about things can just happen good or bad but you're right the bad thing is more likely, and this good thing is ridiculous. But it's also, happen. yeah, it's a it's a fantasy, you know. Yes. And there's readings where it's like, oh, this is his, you know, like final moment, you know, like these With, totally, you know, which doesn't whatever, doesn't like, interest me, yeah, because it's like, yeah, if, yeah, if that was the case, like, the film would say that. <laughs> like this is, yeah. it even comes up and says we're giving him an ending. It makes it clear this is cinematic statement. It is meta comedy. Yeah, it's. It's a metatextual for, yeah. for sure. It's uh, you know, playing with that in the way that the medium can operate in that way and kind of step away from itself and talk to the audience directly in a which, very interesting way. Again, which would not be as impactful if there had been intertitles, you know, spurs throughout yeah, the film. Yeah, uh, that's actually because really that's good like point. Because that's like the sole intertitle, that's the break in continuity. It really makes that ending all the more impactful. And it makes it more filmic, this idea that here's a thing yeah. that film can do and it is that kind of like... I mean, you know, it's very much pseudo-Marxist, but wider than that, of this idea of entertainment's ability to act like religion in that opiate way. of It can dull the masses or it can inspire the masses. And this shows art's ability to manipulate, art's ability to merely ameliorate, as opposed to actually promote change or be a spotlight on reality and you're right by going look it's silent movie language and actually that last sequence is much more montage is much more of a line with how i expect a silent movie to look in terms of it's like comedic and like very upfront editing that draws attention mm -hmm. to itself whereas the rest of the film is much more natural theatrical but natural the, the only thing you said throughout all that that i would disagree with Stephen, is that this is this is not necessarily a film that 
would entice people uh, as a silent film. I think the the filmmaking is such that it, it is able to convey its message so clearly and succinctly that yeah. anyone who has the propensity for this kind of dramatic film to begin with will be able to be drawn to it and will be able to find it accessible and profound as easily as they would a, a comedy like a Chaplin or a Keaton. You know, I've had experience showing it to people even who are very okay. blasé about, you know, film in general, but who are open-minded to art, you know, and to experience it in, in that yeah. way. And they have found connection with this film. So, and again, it's it's, it's very quick. It's very well-paced. It, you know, uh, goes yeah. down pretty easily. And because it's told all visually, there's less archaic convention, I guess you would say, that people have to kind of change and tune themselves into to kind of get mm. the sense of cinematic reading and language that is different with these yeah. silent formats. So I think it works very well as another introductory piece for people. Okay. That's good to know. And yeah, because you're right, at no point are you recalibrating yourself and being like, I have to get into the different mode of, of viewing a silent film, which is which is true sometimes. This, yeah, it feels more contemporary in its pacing and expression. Speaking of films that speak directly to their audience in kind of like manufactured ways, that links us very nicely to a film that maybe isn't different from the others in terms of its style, but is very different from the others in terms of what it's about. So our film for this week is different from the others. But before we get to that, take us down the walk of fame of another one of our German expressionist and wider Weimar film stars. Yeah, this is one of the earlier star vehicles for another darling of the German screen, which was uh, Conrad Veidt. Uh, this was a year before he made Caligari, which, as last episode I kind of at the end, I alluded to kind of being this opening point for his career. Yeah. So, obviously, you know, we, we've got something that kind of predates that, but I thought it would be nice to go through and discuss him kind of as an emblem of that era anyway, especially as kind of the other side of the coin to our previous uh, subject, Emil Jannings, who, yeah. again, as we kind of concluded, ended up being a Nazi stooge. Yeah. Veit, fortunately, will not lead us down that path again. Yay! Get a very different perspective of what happened to uh, the stars of the German screen as the 20s kind of lurched onwards and towards yeah. a more frightening future, I guess you could say. It is kind of like a fun branch. Obviously, it's not fun because it's depressing as hell, but it's like <laughs> a, a like little coin toss of like, are they, are they not going to be a Nazi because of just like the time period where this film inherently takes place? It's like, yeah. well, you've got 10 years to make a decision. What's it going to be? So fortunately, uh, you'll find that, you know, just kind of the way history is kind of shooken out for us, most of the peoples whose legacies have endured from this era went on to not be Nazis. Uh, mm. And yeah, that combination of uh, not having their legacy tarnished and also continuing to do work after yeah. all of, you know, that stuff. So they, they've got, you know, a more interesting and enduring oeuvre to kind of pick apart and uh, yeah. historicize. So... Veit uh, worked primarily as an extra in the theater up until the okay. First World War. He was drafted in 1914 and fought the Battle of Warsaw uh, before he was eventually contracted with jaundice and given a medical discharge, where he was then able to go work back on the stage. That And that allowed him to gain a lot of prestige there. So obviously yeah. the war would have derailed a lot of the stars of the time period. But because of the economic crisis thereafter, you know, there was a lot of work in, you know, pe people needing to work still and so the theater was a place that facilitated that and with that prior experience Veit was able to capitalize on it and really continue to work constantly from the, the midst mm. of the war into the end and onwards 
the war legacy in cinema is really fascinating because you can also make the argument kind of like in the Hollywood system that the Second World War has a lot of responsibility for the, the rise of Hollywood as default um, mm-hmm. because of what the Second World War did to certain other economies and yeah. other like cultural perceptions and what it did to the US. So again, this idea of how culture reacts back and what is allowed in culture after wartime. And you've got, you know, Japanese cinema being fascinating post-war because of American occupation for a while. So... Well, and obviously you got you got the easy example we're talking about here, where German cinema was booming prior to World yeah. War Two. It was, yes. uh, you know, almost on the same level, and then absolutely sort of, and again for apparent reasons. But yeah, definitely that uh, opened us a, a window for uh, another country there to capitalize on it. Which is my potted conspiracy about the devils. Of to me, Ken Russell's The Devils feels <laughs> like, what if that didn't happen? Obviously, it's good the war went the way the war went. Although it's sad the war right. happened to begin with. But it feels like, what if the grammar of mainstream film had pushed down the expressionist route as opposed to the Hollywood route? You would get blockbuster like The Devils as opposed to mm-hmm. the other films of that of that era. But then that's me. Well- it's interesting as well because the, not only do you have to consider the countries who were on the losing and destructive end of it, but the ones mm. whose resources were depleted. So, yeah. like a country like Britain or France yes. would not have been able to compete with America post-war in the same capacity because you know the American industry had you know the forties and fifties so British film. Obviously, it's, it's it's dominated by like Pal and Pressburger, I would say, but there is a lot of like national resources being being David Lean into. too. Oh yeah, David good. True, 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 and true, true. Uh, Carol Reed, Carol Reed, another big yeah. name from there. So there's a couple, but yeah, definitely not on the same kind of level. You're not. It, it, yeah, out it's, as... it's more auteured, isn't it? As opposed to big like studio systems of we're going to put a lot of like arts financing into some set figures who are going to make prestige projects. As opposed to this is our new cultural bedrock because it's it's how we spread our culture and how we dominate. Soft power. Was that the case, or is that just what we remember? I don't know the British I mean, true, film history true, of that time period. True. Like, have we just forgotten all of the forgettable industry films from the the forties and fifties of the British? Yes, I don't. I don't but, specifically know. But the forgettable industry films of America stay more accessible and gain like wider distribution. Yeah, yeah, unquestionably. Oh yeah, so there's a little. Uh, history perspective of what happened after other wars and the kind of how it ties in here but because of how we what we highlighted in the first episode of this uh, season the german industry was allowed to flourish ironically because of the economic downturn and they produced many films many artistic successes many you know benign successes even and at the head of many of those was conrad veit he was one of the chief talents obviously in the preeminent film of the day dust cabinet Dust dr caligari we've alluded yep. to many times um, if you haven't seen Veidt in that role yet and are listening to this series on German Expressionism, you should probably go check it out because yeah. it's it's a it may be the chief text. Is is there a more enduring example? And more it's one of those good see? movies, one of those good, good movies that should be watched. It's yeah. good. And so obviously it kind of uh, shot him into superstardom after he began headlining a lot of other very well-regarded films from the time period, including the first adaptations of Thea von Harbaugh's Das Indische Grandball, or uh, the Indian Tomb films, uh, which were remade several times, including by Fritz Lang uh, in, in the latter part of his career in the 60s. Uh, he starred in a remake of Der Student von Prague, and he also starred in the other nominal Robert Vina film, uh, Orlok's Hande, or the, the Hands of Orlok. I know of that. Yeah, in that film, he plays a concert pianist who gets into like a, a horrible accident and has his hands replaced with that of a criminal. <laughs> so it's like that Simpsons episode with the hair. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yes, it's like when Snake Bart gets Snake's hair. Exactly, exactly that. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, very, very expressionistic. Uh, when I watched it, I kind of, I found it to be kind of uh, Cronenbergian almost as a kind of weird, more contemporary thing in, in the sense that the horror of the film was less about the external thing and more about this inescapable yeah. feeling of your body, like, like this alien thing that is now okay, a piece I'm... of you and being unable to be separated from that. That sounds way more interesting to me. I'm, I will check that out. That sounds great. That was the sense I got from it. Uh, it's, again, a, another wonderful expressionist film. Vite gives a terrific performance uh, of many of the other ones I've seen. That's probably the next one I would recommend behind Caligari in terms of really seeing his talent on screen. Yeah, and it's uh, another great turn from uh, Robert Vina. So if you like Caligari, again, not, not quite as bold as that one, certainly, but another go-to example, I think, for expressionist film of this time. Yeah. After uh, this series of successes, though, like many stars of the German screen this time, uh, the lure of Hollywood snagged Veidt for a couple of films, initially at the behest of John yeah. Barrymore to star alongside him in The Beloved Rogue, before he ended up signing a contract with Universal and making a handful more films, the most enduring of which is The Man Who Laughs yeah. adaptation there. A lot of people will recognize the iconic constant grin of Veidt in that film. That's probably his second most iconic role, as it went on to chiefly inspire the look of Batman's The Joker. Yeah. Film itself is also worth uh, noting, again, as another example of how German expressionism was finding its way into uh, a lot of American films at the time. So, like, the subsect of American features which were directed by emigre directors and starring emigre stars. So, basically, taking the movement and bringing it to Hollywood... This one in particular was directed by Paul Lenny, who had made a series of films with Fight previously in Germany, including Waxworks, which also starred Emil Jannings. Again, just Hollywood importing all kinds of talent over to take the same skill set that was making so much yeah. success in Germany and using it for itself. <clears throat> Veidt didn't stay long in America, however, as the, the advent of talking pictures in 19... 27, 1928, yeah. uh, made work hard because he he still retained a very heavy accent. So he ended up oh. moving back to Germany where he worked without much issue uh, until 1933. Obviously, the big turning point for everyone in the industry at this time. Yeah. Unlike our other players, though, like <laughs> Werner Krauss or Emil Jannings, Veit was very much against the Nazis. He very much hated the Nazis. And he quickly arranged to leave the country less than four months after Hitler assumed the chancellorship. Yeah. Before his departure, the new minister of propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, yes. had issued a racial questionnaire throughout the industry in order to purge any Jews. Mm. So Veit stated on his form that he was Jewish, even though he wasn't. Uh, his wife was Jewish. And he refused okay. to divorce her, despite being offered to stay and star and lead the industry if he did, and just decided to leave instead. Man, more, more like Comrade Veidt. This guy rules. Yeah, yeah. So he and his wife fled first to Britain. Ah. Yeah, they, they, had, they had to flee. Obviously not quite at the time where purging is so much so that people yeah. can't get away. I guess you understood that element of privilege of being part of the, the intellectual elite, so to speak. You have access to information and resources earlier and can make decisions earlier than others would be able to. Yeah, but obviously there were others who left even earlier. But yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly when, when the gun was put to his head, he, he got out. Yeah. Uh, he made the, the right decision as quickly as possible and did so unsubtly, I think is the yeah. other important mark here to say. Yeah. <laughs> And doubled down on that when he got to Britain by taking leading roles in Jewish sympathetic films, including The Wandering Jew and Jew Seuss, 
which is not to be confused with the infamous Nazi propaganda film of the same okay. name. He went on to work with famous British directing duo Powell and Pressburger in early their early films, The Spy in Black and Contraband, as well as the famous Technicolor epic, The Thief of Baghdad. Which is famously directed by Powell and Berger. Mm-hmm. No press on that one, which is always funny to me, that it is Powell and Berger rather than Powell and Pressburger. Just a different dude of a similar name to his buddy. I don't know the history yeah. of why that is the case. Um, but, uh, I don't know, I, Powell... Powell made a number of films on his own. One of my also, favorite like, films. My, my yeah, fa- 1960, Peeping Tom. Yeah, yeah. My favorite film of his, my favorite films in general. Uh, yeah, I, I, I love The Archers. Um, really, really do. And yeah, um, I have not watched Peeping Baghdad yet. It's one of the films, one of the few um, Archers, I presume it's an Archers production, that I have not yet seen. I did watch it uh, in a little bit of preparation for this. It is, you know, well... What you expect for a film that... that yeah, but there's, there's a reason on. why I've not been watching it for a while, because I was like, oh, I don't want to write a view that goes, it's visually sumptuous, but it's a little bit racist, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Especially because it's not even an adaptation of the 1000 and Nights stories in any way. It's just yeah. totally made-up stuff. Uh, oh, but wow. I guess it's I guess it's noteworthy for how influential the film ended up being. Francis Ford Coppola was famously a very big fan of the film. Okay. the The villainous role that that Vite plays yeah. is so he's Jafar, uh, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Which again is the film was very influential on the Disney film Aladdin yeah. later on. Very much like just basically copying that dynamic with him and the Sultan. Yeah. You know, almost one to one there. So it made an iconic impact. Mm. Uh, I don't know that the film totally stands the test of time, but as far as you know, kind of. Impressive Technicolor uh, exotic adventure films go. You know, I've seen worse, definitely. From yeah, the time. I mean, also I, the reason I have avoided it is because even films by the the archers that I do really like, I have problematic kind of like relationships with. Which um, Black Narcissus being key there of like there's some bad yeah. stuff in Black Narcissus and that. Yeah, it's. I don't want to say it's as, like not as or I, I well I don't think Black Narcissus is quite as bad. I don't know. Yeah, uh, we, we don't need to put racism top. I don't need to split. Yeah, yeah, I don't need to split the racism hairs here. They're both got some pretty yeah terrible uh, aspects to them, but mm. you can appreciate things about Thief of Baghdad. I guess I'll say. Yeah, and I, I, I still plan to watch it certainly. Uh, in April of 1940, Veidt and his wife journeyed to America in an effort to promote the British war effort. Uh, they were looking to distribute contraband over there, oh, cool. uh, hoping to get all the proceeds to go further to financing the war. Which makes sense why he got involved with Powell and Pressburger then, because they did a lot of work as part of the British war effort. A lot of their movies yeah. were seen as part of that. Somewhat controversially, because wasn't it um, Colonel Blimp that was financed by and then was, was somewhat rejected and they didn't want them to put it out because it, it portrayed... Germans as having been heroic in the past. I can't remember if it's that one or not, but probably. But obviously everyone in the industry in Britain at the time was putting funneling mm. everything into the war effort. It was all hands on deck, you know, at that point. So while Veidt was in America, he was roped into what would end up being primarily villainous Nazi roles. He, he was being casted. This is a time period where the American film industry was finally ready to say the Nazis are bad on screen. We fi- they finally got to that point. <laughs> They're bad like, okay, on screen. Yeah, we've cut ties. You know, uh, everything's gone south enough there that we we definitely can take a, a negative stance. We can't be judicious anymore. <laughs> so Veidt, like many German emigres, ended up playing the villain for lots of these films. And in Veidt's case, somewhat begrudgingly so. He wasn't like totally enthusiastic about it, but he still did so, you know, in an effort to truly highlight and showcase the unending villainy of the Nazi regime. He played uh, Nazis 
in three Warner Brothers films in 1942, All Through the Night, opposite Humphrey Bogart, Nazi Agent, where he played ideologically opposed identical twins, and most famously as Major Strasser in Casablanca. Yes. This latter role is likely the second most iconic of his entire career, and sadly, the last released before his untimely death. Veidt died of a heart attack on April 3rd, 1943, at the Riviera Country Club in Los Angeles, the result of a genetic heart condition which also claimed his mother's life. He was only 50 years old. His legacy is ultimately twofold. That of an iconic actor embodying German expressionism both at home and abroad, and as an ardent anti-Nazi advocate, who not only repudiated the threats of the regime in no uncertain terms, but continued to fight against them for the rest of his life through both the roles he played and through financial contributions to the war. So his last film's Casablanca then, is that what you're saying? It was the last one released before his death. I think he had wow. one other that came out thereafter but yeah it's it, it's it really is like the bookend it just makes me think life. of like the legacy of last films which to mind always um comes round julia's final film and orson welles's final film uh street fighter <laughs> and transformers the movie um so it's nice to have casablanca as that just just for the record here his last vite's actual last film is called above suspicion Joan Crawford film with okay. Fred McMurray, directed well, by I'm Richard sure. Dorp. Yeah, I can imagine that also being quite good. Probably not Casablanca. I mean, I doubt it's as good yeah. as Casablanca. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 better to frame it as Caligari and Casablanca, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, comes, yeah. comes off a little bit better, <clears throat> a little more historic. But yeah. but I mean, even before Caligari, like we said, we've got Anders Hals the Andern, or different from the others. Yes, which is a really really interesting film. I mean, when we were Talking about this film, uh, messaging about it, a point that, that David said that I wanted to reiterate is what he believes about people and the watching of this film. I'm putting it vaguely so you can say it. So make your point, mm -hmm. because I, I want to echo it and second it. I'm trying to remember specifically what you're alluding to here. <laughs> this is who you think should watch this film. Oh, um, I think this is a film that everyone can and should see. Yeah, I mean, again, can is difficult because it's actually quite hard to find. So actually, yeah. maybe people can't see it because it's difficult to find. If you have access I mean, to can, it... <laughs> when I say can, I mean in the sense that <laughs> the the accessibility of this is not such that the language is so isolating. It's the very... It's basically a book. Yeah, it's very educationally oriented. That's, that's kind of the intent here. So in yeah. the same way that you would watch any other kind of educational film like the information that's being conveyed here is in the sense that it's just going straight to you and the the yes. language or Didactic. barrier of yeah definitely that is the the perfect word for this film so different from the others which i'm going to keep calling it the english thing because i'm a you know a philistine like that so from my limited research so this is part of a series of films plural as in not like a, a series in like in a franchise but these are the enlightenment films you, you could call it a wave of films that okay. were being made at the time the there's a little introduction at the beginning that yeah. kind of caps you on all this but basically yeah. with the turnover of the new regime the weimar republic coming into being a lot of the censorship imposed by the previous kaiserreich was lifted off yeah. which just opened the door for a lot of more free speech to come through particularly mm. in art and so this wave of educationally oriented films about the study of sex i suppose you would say sex and sexuality and gender which was prevalently happening at the time period in germany kind of famously people refer to this period of weimar germany as being 
more accepting and more open about homosexuality in particular. And you can see that even in iconic films like Cabaret, okay. I think is like an obvious example to go to. It's like, yeah, there's this thriving gay scene that's happening in, in Weimar Germany just before the Nazis come in. And I don't know if it's just because that's like an isolated thing in history that we have a good record of or because of the ironic juxtaposition yeah. with the Nazis coming in thereafter. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it is it is a known about thing, I feel like. So this then falls into that thing. So this 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 film exists for one clear reason, um, which is to complain about a specific law that relates to the, the criminalization and therefore the encouraged prejudice. Paragraph 175 of the German legal yes. code, which made homosexuality yes. illegal. Uh, yeah, just because there was a thriving and known about scene at the time does not mean that it was yeah. legal to be gay still in Weimar Germany. It was very much not. And this, so I remember, so this idea of like de facto versus de jure law, isn't it? And I forget the way around because I remember looking this up when we covered a certain film on spoiling things that um, we was, our attention was drawn to. And there I was looking around this kind of like distinction and there was a law there. Um, and I'm not going to actually talk about the film is because I don't think it's a very good film. I don't want to draw that much more attention to it, but I also don't want to sound mean about it because it was sent to us to, to look at this idea that there was a law criminalizing homosexuality, but the state was like, yeah, but we never use it. We don't enact it. We just have it, which seems like, okay then. And then that's a way of actually meaning of what you're really doing is allowing prejudice to continue that people have in their minds. This is wrong because there's a law about it seems so like well we're not gonna do anything with it it enforces and it normalizes and it encourages obviously and i think this is obvious as really saying but i still thought it worth mentioning and that is the mm -hmm. the frame of this film of people are very prejudicial in this film often not in a litigious way um but are showcasing they want to change repress and force someone out of their homosexuality and there's also a kind of sort of damage yes. that hangs over still with this threat yeah. of judicial action. And again, like just because it's enforced. not necessarily yeah. enacted it or enforced doesn't mean that it won't be or isn't. And it again, it, it was certainly still punishable, still was punished at, yeah. at the time, uh, still enforced. And just because there was a certain amount of survivability and visibility that yeah. was allowed does not mean that it was not acted upon or i think before we get so. into the interesting parts of the film it's just worth kind of like getting out the way this idea of is the film very good filmically no not really yeah i guess we should talk about it as yeah. a film i i think kind of my conclusion when watching it i was like this is not good art if you ask me to value this as art it is it is not a good demonstration of how film is art it is an yeah. educational and historical piece first and foremost, and that is where so much of its interest lies. Now, I do want to grant it a certain amount of lenience oh, because yeah. it's very clear that a lot of the art was cut out of it. <laughs> this is the first film we're covering, I think, on the show that has significant pieces still missing. Uh, every now and then it uh, goes like like Animal House-style freeze frames, and I'm like, this is very contemporary feeling, but clearly this is just like a leftover artifact. It doesn't just like have this like strange freeze frame. So on this podcast where we're covering lots of lost films yeah. uh, that have since been rediscovered, they're not always rediscovered in whole. Yeah. And so to make up for that, there are sometimes, again, if a reel is missing, for instance, the restoration will often just have pictures, you know, surviving yeah. stills from scenes utilized as placeholders with then contextualizing yeah. intertitles placed to describing the scenes. And that usually helps kind of fill the gap 
for an otherwise mostly complete film. The issue the of this of film, film, though, is that a lot of the intertitles that clearly directly relate to the footage are already very, very descriptive and doing a lot more work than the film is doing narratively. So it seems like the rhythm of the film is not that much um, disrupted by this. It seems like it feels right. of a piece. I said I did want to give it a certain amount of lenience because, again, it's very clear that pieces are missing and yeah. have to be filled in with all that extraneous text. But it's also clear watching that the cinematic language that is yes. used there is very kind of basic. The production yeah. is very bare. It's a very minimal sets, you know, minimal direction going on there and framing. And also the treatise of the film is in itself inherently explanatory. It, it needs yeah. to convey a lot of information through lots of text so even what does survive what is not making up for missing footage mm. is already inherently very bogged down in you know explanatory intertitles which i think i'm much more open to than you are i think that the way that we we approach film i am often much more celebratory and much more forgiving of the directly didactic very angry in your face films because I, I i make the point constantly that i don't think we should confuse subtlety and intelligence of those being distinct characteristics. You don't have to be subtle to be intelligent, and some things you shouldn't be subtle about, and it's actually intelligent to be unsubtle. But then there is an artistic preference, so there are films that I absolutely adore. Um, Bamboozled being a key example that is blatant, in-your-face, and combative the entire time. A more contemporary example being Sorry to Bother You, for example. So I really do like polemical in your face death by hanging will be another one where it just like it starts telling you what it's about after a while sometimes for me mm-hmm. i feel that's the way to do it because sometimes audiences need to be told things to allow the film to be intelligent in different ways so i'm much more open to this style of storytelling but the film itself is, is not very good i mean i agree I, I think there's definitely again i will i will not fault a film for just kind of cutting away yeah. all of the excess or the dramatization to just make its point and make it completely totally clear and this is a another example of that i guess where we differ is that when it's at the sacrifice yeah. of a more artistic frame or or when i disagree with or don't find myself affected by the filmmaking yeah. itself as an expression that's when you know maybe i take more issue with it being naturally didactic which is really interesting and i feel with this actually the the best scene of the film is the didactic scene uh, by far um, ah, yeah, that's when it gets powerful and interesting and it's almost like, it is like proto-Godardian in the way of it just becomes like filmic slideshow in a way that I actually really really like it is that kind of like really cool breakdown it reminds me of a lot of like new wave stuff a lot of like the political end of the new wave stuff and like here's some stuff here's some images I'm going to tell you some stuff and that's a great thing that film can do of just like the fictionalization of the story completely just like drops yeah. for that segment yeah. it's just like we have entered into this like classroom environment where the sexologist there magnus hirschfield who is also a writer mm. for the film who's kind of like you know one of the chief people kind of engineering the film here is just explaining his theory his you know reasoning his ideology here and they're using these you know real world pictures and examples that are you know very frank and you know certain again like there's no fabricating or fantasizing yeah. about it anymore there's no makeuping or actors going on it's just pictures of real people in yeah. these frank presentations with very direct language emphasizing the point that the film is making yeah so to contextualize a little bit and um, for those that have not watched because it is quite hard to watch um, but do seek out um so he, he has this kind of like overall story which is about a famous musician played by Conrad Veidt who embarks on a homosexual relationship with another man and that leads to them being judged, blackmailed, etc. And that builds up to, so a lot of like fanatization, some flashbacks to kind of like previous examples of homophobia which are, are all well done narratively. Filmically it's a lot of just like static 
um, emplacements that the action kind of happens in the frame, but not always. There's a climactic uh, fight scene where yeah. it's like you've actually you've, you've left the. Fr- and it, never mind. Next scene. Um, <laughs> so that bit's fun, and then it builds up to this court case slash kind of like speech thing where it does the thing of like let's actually settle some stuff, which is the scene we're talking about. So therefore, the sexologist takes the stage who we've seen previously, who comes in to make statements to family members about. Well, just so you know, homosexuality isn't bad. He does that throughout, and then he gives his long spiel. And that is the filmmaking statement. I think why it works having both is because one feed in, feeds into the other. Because you have this narrative that, dare I say, humanises and creates empathy for characters and presents it as kind of like normal and worthy of story and worthy of representation. And then you have the didactic lecture thing. And because it has this sympathetic lens from the beginning and it allows the film to have a villain and therefore it mm-hmm. allows the film to comment on the usage of law because law is used against the blackmailer. So it shows this is the thing that law can do, that law can be the wielder of justice. What law should not do is this. So I feel in the end, the way those stories intertwine is actually quite powerful and is very well done. One of the other things that's, I guess, important to know about is that because filmmaking at this point is now a de facto fictional format, yeah. in order to reach your widest audience possible with a message, you're going to want to couch your thesis in this kind of form. So my understanding is that a lot of the other films of this kind of nature the these educational or whatever were a lot more exploitive in nature yeah uh, as as far oh, as my, yeah. my research has gone it no other significant examples have kind of like turned up as worth exploring or even preserving again like this this one was hard enough to find on its own but this one takes it from a real sympathetic more more standpoint and wants to make a dramatic portrait as a vessel for yeah. communicating its ideas and its themes to a wider, more perceptive audience, which it was able to briefly before censorship was able to come back in and close off who was able to see it. It it became, uh, in less than a year, really only accessible to medical and scientific circles. So, I mean, to to link back to what you're saying, because I agree with you in terms of, like, clearly to to get it seen and made, it becomes fictive. But I I would also not disagree, but add to that point of, that's still the case now. And I have this conversation a lot at home of, Erin and I go see a movie, and it's things like She Said, for example, which we, we both quite enjoyed and thought was a good film, but it's like, the documentary of this would be outstanding. And I'm always just like, what is the documentary? And she is always just like, every time correct me, like, because then people wouldn't see it. Um, and that's the mm-hmm. case really and I think she rewatched recently which is a film that I despise and she doesn't like it but rewatched it for reasons that will explicate is The Big Short and I actually recommended The Big Short to some students recently so I said actually it is a good explainer of some things you need to know because there's a lot of important things in there and the reason she watched it she said I like reminding myself of what happened in this period and it explains it well to me it's a shame the film is bad at doing that and that it feels the need to be fictive a documentary would have been better but to get the audience in, it goes that way. And it's kind of aware, isn't it? Like, isn't like the whole point <sighs> that people are more receptive to Margot Robbie in yeah. a bathtub explaining the housing crisis mm. to, to you than I don't know, reading a, an article about it or something? Yeah, which is why I don't like the movie, because I'm just like, God damn it. Like, that's, it's only, you are making that true. It's self-propagating. But this isn't the, the Stephen complains about the big short podcast. Oh, I hate the movie. Mm-hmm. I hate the movie so much. <laughs> Different from the others, however. So mm-hmm. I think as a film about the need, the overall need to point out the problems in legislation, legislature, and to combat those, I think it's really well articulated because it stays in its lane and it knows what it's talking about. This thing is wrong. You know it wrong as it happens to people. However, when it gets into the weeds about gender sexuality, I think it makes a lot of what we call virtuous errors 
in, in ling linguistic circles. So a virtuous error is something that a child does where they make a mistake linguistically, but that mistake shows they understand something. So they'll say like men's rather than men. And you're like, oh, you understand how plurals work? Well done. But actually that's wrong. And this film is mm -hmm. full of metaphorically virtuous errors of, oh, you understand that there is a diversity within gender and there's a diversity within sexuality and expressions of sexuality. But the way you express that is very limited, partly because of the time of academia around this, but also at points it's just othering where it doesn't need to be. It definitely presents... It is, as Judith Butler would say, it is positioned from the heterosexual matrix, so this idea of heteronormativity. It presents straight men specifically as this is normal people, and the gay people, they're also fine. They're just like normal people. Which want to go like, oh, that's nice. You go, wait a minute, what do you mean just like? And what do you mean? So that is the lens it's working in. And when it's talking about gender variation, it links things back to binary understanding repeatedly, repeatedly. So it's like there are women that are masculized or there are men that are feminized, but there is no room for like fluidity or existence outside of these gendered poles, which is me mm -hmm asking the film to have an understanding of gender theory that's decades after it, which I think yeah. does show the film is very... I do like it when art allows it to have this conversation sometimes, because most things don't. So the fact that I can get into the weeds about, well, actually, no, well, actually, yes, well, actually, no, does show the film is swinging. It misses in mm -hmm. some ways that could be quite upsetting and that are misleading, and for its purpose as a piece of public service, make it... It reminded me of Glenn and Glenda, um, the Ed Wood movie, Glenn or Glenda. Um, it is not as bad as Glenn or Glenda, but it is similarly be like, well, you mean very well, but that's not really what that means in a lot of places. Right. And especially after speaking with you about it a bit more, uh, you know, saw that a bit. Even myself, who can sometimes still struggle to wrap my head around everything about the, the more fluid spectrum of gender and sexuality, found the film to be very profoundly yeah. ahead of its oh, time. Or maybe at so the cutting edge of its yeah. time. And that's the the big thing to remember. Like, yeah, from a modern understanding of gender and sexuality, the film is not quite on target. Yeah. But for 1919... Oh, it's incredible. Literally nothing else. Not a single thing is even remotely hinting at that and actively repressing any perception of a non-binary spectrum here. Yeah, that the, the, there is room for expression outside of gender norms is, 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 is a thing this says very... And it, but the, the problem... For me, all that's what I'm fine with. For me, the issue is the othering framework, that it always presents this idea yeah. of these are the gay people and we should tolerate them. This is a film of tolerance. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that as well. And again, it presents it as a the heterosexual is the base, the default, yes. and then this other one, there's this other option. Even defines is, it as a third I, I sex, they, doesn't it? It says, like, there are men, yeah, there are women, yeah, there are gay people. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's nah, not quite. But again, this is like, the pioneering mm. thinking at the time period these are these are people making advances yeah. just putting these theories and, I, and concepts out here which um, is worth okay. reminding therefore of what type of people are allowed to push academia forwards and this is very telling of that of these certain voices mm -hmm. and this is why we are much better it's not because of linear progress that we'll talk about because the film shows that progress is not all linear. It's because now with the proliferation of the internet and what communication, more appropriate voices can be heard more. So people who didn't have access to the materials that could get their voice out there now do. So it seems like all these things are news. Like, no, this has been talked about for a long, 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 long time, but did not have the apparatus to make that point. And therefore academia did not lend them the, the tools to make that point. And obviously the existence of the film itself is an example of how 
progress is not a linear mm. line. It's not a straight moving line because here is an example of progress, you know, in, yeah. in a sense that was then repressed and pushed yeah. away and hidden. But also within the film, it demonstrates that historical progress, you know, or understanding in and of itself, there's a very small thing, a very small artistic moment that the film has probably like the one cinematic thing that i really like that the film does and that it's it's early on and it, and it bookends as well is that Veidt's character is kind of reflecting on the oppression of uh homosexual people you know that's going on and he kind of looks up and he sees a vision of various historical figures who were out and known to be homosexual even at that time figures like oscar wilde and tchaikovsky and frederick the great who had their own struggles into that. And they still do. They still have that sexuality debated to this day mm. because obviously at the time it was not recorded with certainty. You know, it was still very hushed and discussed. But the evidence we have backs up those assessments all, almost concretely. Which goes back to uh, the last one I say about this film in terms of it as an ethical object, I guess, is the way to put it, of, yes, it's easy for me. And I want to say that also I, I am... Feel free. I mean, better perspectives than mine exist, and I would I would love to be told. Well, actually, no, 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 and all of this, and that, that that's the way to learn. That's the way understanding. But to to my understanding and to my reading on the subject, there are things in this that that I find to be problematized. However, um, films that deal with these things that I can think of later are, first of all, decades away, decades away. For me, it's 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 the sixties and seventies. If you have like the birth of, of of queer cinema, and I love queer cinema. But the thing I'll say about queer cinema, I mean, Emma went to a, a lecture a while ago about LGBTQ plus film in general. And in that, the person made a distinction between there is LGBTQ plus film and there is queer cinema. And queer cinema is an idea of it's a much more artistic and experimental genre place. So your early Todd Haynes, your Kenneth Anger, that's queer cinema. Love, Simon may be about gay people. But it is not queer mm -hmm. cinema in that same qualitative judgment. So films that actually deal with topics this explicitly only exist in the outsider art space, the experimental art space, and the counterculture. This is a film speaking about those things that is going for the mainstream, is going for the commercial, is going for every eye. And that's really, really important. Yeah, and I think it a lot of its messaging, again, even as outdated as it mm. may be, is still something that, uh, you know, a certain amount of people today who still are struggling to understand or appreciate this thing, again, like, have not gotten on board with the obvious, oh, it, you know, It, it bends positively, yeah. Like, this this is clear. Yeah. You, you will take away some maybe misunderstandings, but actually I think the viewer will be intelligent enough to be like, um, uh, maybe not, but that, yes. But the, the positives that you'll take away from it are, are, are great and overwhelming. Yeah, and again, it's testimony that this is an issue. These very apparent truths are something that we are still having yeah. to debate about in some capacity to this day that a film from 1919 we have his testimony demonstrates at least a burgeoning yeah. understanding of i mean my favorite filmmaker of all time agnes Varda, because she's the greatest filmmaker of all time has a movie i don't like at all called um respond des femmes notre corps notre sex so women reply our body our sex which is about what does it mean to be a woman um, and it's a film from 1975, and it's one I don't like because it is deeply essentialist, where it defines gender under kind of like biological terms. And this film gets into that point of it starts to about the biology and how biology leads to gender behaviours. But even this film understands that gender behaviours are societal. And it's it's a damning shame that there is a, a Vada film which feels very much like a prisoner of its time. I mean, Vada is a hugely progressive figure, and obviously that is part of that wave of feminism that was pushing that idea, but still should be critiqued for being, you know, factually incorrect. 
and you've got this 1919 film which is more nuanced than a 1975 short from the greatest filmmaker of all time. So, damn. Mm -hmm. So if that's not an endorsement of the film and how progressive it was for the time and how important Mm. the fact that it survives and endures is, I don't know what it is. Yeah, It's, it's, it's really awesome. So I think why this was lost seems pretty obvious. I'm presuming it's because of it being banned. Yeah, it was it was banned and censored and then obviously, you know, targeted for yeah. destroyment by the Nazis very shortly after. Yeah. The only reason it survives is because the sexologist in the film, Magnus Hirschfeld, mm. cut a piece out of it to preserve and incorporate into a film he made in 1927 oh, wow. entitled Laws of Love. It was a documentary that incorporated part of the footage to discuss the subject of homosexuality. It, apparently sometime it made its way to Russia or Ukraine. Yeah. based on different sources I'm, I'm reading here, in the 20s, uh, where it was subtitled, and then eventually was rediscovered in the City Museum of Munich oh, in cool. the 1970s. Wow. Yeah, it, uh, it's been as restored as it can be, given what pieces of it remained. Mm. And is, and is again, mostly a complete feature. You can watch it. Yeah, in, entirely a... watchable. I think you, you get the impact from it. And I don't know if yeah. that much be added to it, but obviously it'd be better to have it in full. But, you know. Yeah, but you get the sense from watching that the cinematic failings are inherent. They are not yeah. because of what is missing. Yeah. Unlike other films where you can glean a better mm. presentation if the footage survived. Yeah, for sure. So what is our next journey? Our next journey is actually, I, I would say, uh, kind of tied in. Because as we kind of talked about, the visibility of various homosexuals in the Weimar period uh, extended as well into some of the biggest name filmmakers of the time, including perhaps the biggest filmmaker of Weimar Germany, F.W. Murnau. Uh-huh. I've seen a film by them recently. Yes, yes. So uh, his film phase that was lost from 1922, Der Brennende Acker, or The Burning Soil, will be our next topic, and we will discuss so much of Murnau. You know, it may have been better to put the last <laughs> laugh discussion at the front of that. But it wouldn't, wouldn't but have been a... cogent. I'd have been like, oh, I can't remember it from a few weeks ago. But there's a lot to discuss yeah. about Murnau. My my notes for him and the various circles he interacts with. In, like, there's a couple of uh, rabbit holes I yeah. went down in writing my notes because he just touches on a number of figures that otherwise we probably won't yeah. cover as explicitly. So it was like, I'm just going to put them into this part. So we are going to get a grand perspective now that we've covered the key actors of German cinema in the 20s. Now we're going to cover the directors. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try and trick David into watching Entranced Earth by mistake because I love that movie so much. And I know he hasn't seen it. So I'm like, there you go, you're going to watch Entranced Earth. Just send me a copy with the wrong name yeah, on it. Yeah, it's, it's a similar enough title. You could watch it and you'd be like, oh, this is brilliant, Stephen. I'm like, yes, it's a fantastic film. Am I, am I going to start questioning things when it's not a silent movie? Y- yes. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Wow, this film is so ahead of its time. Sync dialogue and everything. Yeah. Trust oh, Earth is so good. But <laughs> while you are waiting for the next episode, please find us in other, other places. Um, you can find David on Twitter. You are now... I'm not. I deleted Twitter. Okay, you cannot find David on Twitter because he takes moral <laughs> stances. Unlike me, I, I will, you know, I'll be there in the dirt. So you cannot find David on Twitter. You can find David on Letterboxd, where he is David A. Punch. And you can find a lot of his um, old writing on TwinKeeks.com, which covers a lot of classic film, including some of the films, linked to films we've spoken about. Um, And we'll allude to his articles every now and then. Very worth reading. Look up his author page there and read the goods. Um, You can find me 
in a lot of places where audio is found, um, but I'm going to point you mainly to the Stacks Patreon, because that pays my bills. So if you could go to patreon.com slash the Stacks on Film, you can support me and Jack making what we like to think is both insightful and irreverent film commentary, not as academically skewed as this, Sometimes it can be, but more about having smart conversations in a silly way um, about the media that inspires us or enrages us. I can attest. It's quite silly and smart. There you go. That's that's the vibe that I go for. So, whilst you are looking for me, whilst you're looking for David, why not look for a lost silent film? This time, I try to link it to the film. This time, I guess, why not just look up banned material from years ago and then cross several countries and then goes, it, it seems to be just go to your nearest German film archive. It seems to be the way now. So just head to your nearest German film archive and go, is that a real film? And they go, oh, wait, this isn't a real film. Oh, God, we found it. So go that way. And of course, subscribe. Yeah, you know, it, it is funny. There is a certain amount of practice where sometimes the you know, archives will just hold screenings. Yeah. Of like, here's a bunch of footage we have and we have no That's idea so where cool, it is. Though, and they that? just gather people and say... Like, they might recognize a familiar extra in, like, the background and try and, like, locate to where they were, you know, at this time period and see if it correlates. And they found films through that method. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's definitely a thing that happened. There you go. So, what you should do is buy a bunch of random footage from whatever, like, mm-hmm. bring-and-buy sale or car boot sale, which I'm sure is a thing outside of the UK, um, that you go to, and then just screen it to people that know faces. <laughs> and apart from that, um, we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.